and within about 3,000 milliseconds of concluding, Raleigh was here. <laughs> it's all right, Raleigh, we love you. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, he said something that others said, so I'm not just going to pick on him. Let's turn, first of all, to Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 7. Sir, yes. Oh, uh, you, what? No. What did you ask? Oh, we're going into biblical soteriology. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. <laughs> yes, we're going into biblical soteriology. No fooling. But I'm. <laughs> That was dreadful. However, no, that doesn't help either. I guess I'll just stick with but. But I want to introduce it with this thought because it's a very, very interesting problem that we're going to face. So anyway, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small or constricted, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. This passage has fascinated me for years because I believe it is such an honest passage, such an honest statement from our Lord about the narrowness of the way of life. Uh, and I believe that uh, John 16, uh, 14, 6 reflects that same narrowness when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and then really ties that down when he says, no man comes to the Father but by me. Now, if you look at the way he said it, verse 14 is interesting because at the beginning of it, you can translate the word for uh, equally well with because. And what you get there exegetically is a, is a very clear sense that a primary reason why there are so many on the gate uh, and on the way that leads to destruction, going through the gate and on the way that leads to destruction, is the offensiveness of the narrow way. In other words, it's the narrowness of the narrow way. And uh, I remember some years ago uh, at Lemoore when uh, John J. O'Connor was the chief of chaplains. He called it my boss, who was also a Catholic. And John J. O'Connor is the one that's, you know, the cardinal in New York now is taking quite a stand against abortion. And uh, J.J. called up my boss uh, because I had applied to go to postgraduate school and uh, he wanted to know if my boss would recommend me. And he said, of course not. He would not recommend me. And uh, when J.J. asked why, he said, well, he's too narrow-minded because uh, he believes in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, you see. And that idea of narrow-mindedness uh, is something that uh, really and truly is part of the gospel. There's a right sense in which we're to be very narrow-minded. And the fact is that on a narrow road, one of the things that makes it interesting is that the, the bordering ditches are far, far closer together. And if you take an eight-lane highway, and if you drive home drunk on an eight-lane highway, there's a certain mathematical probability that you won't go into the ditch that's higher than the mathematical probability that you go into a ditch in a one-and-a-half-wide lane road out in the country. Now, my point simply is this, that in what we're looking at with respect to the doctrine of the nature of man, and then as we look at salvation, that glorious truth in Jesus Christ, there's a balance that uh, I am going to try to at least address and ask you to, if nothing else, pray for your pastor uh, as he attempts to walk that narrow road, especially and particularly in this subject. And I so often think of what uh, John Murray used to say uh, about the difference between what's right and wrong. Or as, as, uh, I didn't remember him using the words vice and virtue in the lectures, but he would talk about what was evil and righteous with respect to theology, but he would say that uh, it's not a great gulf or a chasm, but he would say it's a razor's edge. A razor's edge. And if some of you uh, are at this point in time thinking, you know, this is, this is tough stuff. 
And this is hard. There's so much we've got to be aware of. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's very, very difficult. And it would be very sleazy and dishonest of me to suggest it's easy. I believe it's something that takes a considerable investment. And Jesus said, and I believe very honestly, if you're going to enter the kingdom, sit down and count the cost. And believe it or not, faithfulness in theology is one of the toughest areas in which to be faithful. It's much easier to be faithful in a few rules that we set up, supposedly as reflections of the commandments. That's much easier to be faithful there than to be faithful in our thought life and especially our theological thought life. And so there's an investment of energy and effort that's significant. Now, I want to even push the analogy further, and I'm going to ask, I didn't happen to bring a coin with me. Somebody got a quarter, and nobody has 50-cent pieces anymore, but, uh, uh, or silver dollars. Mm-hmm. If anybody has a silver dollar, let me know. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, okay. Here, that... I'll get two out of this. Now, I realize you can't see it all, but the point that I would like to illustrate is this. Would you be willing to concede, as I hold this up, that there's never been an exception. There are some things that just by the logistics of the created world that God has put in us, the, the, the limitations, that there are things that transcend all cultures. And we dig up ancient coins from Rome and Greece. Same thing's true. They have a head or an obverse and a reverse, a head or a tail. Would you agree with that? Would you secondly agree, and this is too obvious, but I think the illustration is profound, would you agree that the head truly represents the coin and yet it's only 50% of what the coin, in a sense, declares, and the same thing is true of the tail or the reverse? Now, at this point, this may seem uh, so trivial, you'd say kindergartners uh, can do that, but now I'd like to propose to you that just as in the case of the sovereignty of the God and the responsibility of man, truths that we're to be equally jealous for. I submit the same dilemma of sorts, it's not really a dilemma, but it is a dynamic sense obligation, is true with respect to the nature of man and the salvation of Christ. And you see, if I decide I want to look at the tail, the very fact and act of looking at the tail precludes my being able to look at the head. Is that not true? And so if I flip it over and look at the head, the act, in fact, of making a decision to examine the head obliterates my vision of the tail. Well, if you show that illustration to most teenagers, they'll say, oh, well, you know, I can do it this way. (laughs) There's always somebody in the crowd that, you know, has figured out they can get around the, the limitation. But the fact is that when you try to look at it end on, what do you get? You get a distorted picture, don't you? You get an incorrect view of both realities. So the only way you maintain that conceptual balance is by a regular going back and forth between the two. That's the only way you keep a balanced picture of that two-sided coin. Now, if you're with me... uh, I would then like to press it this way. What the point that, that I appreciated Raleigh make, and it's a pra- point that I believe if we really take our responsibility as pastors seriously, is something we always have before us. You don't want to preach so much on the nature of man that people are inclined to despair. I think that's, that's intuitively and tangibly obvious. But neither do you want to preach so much on the glory of Christ that people lose sight of the seriousness of sin. Because if you lose sight of the seriousness of sin, whether you think it's true or not, you will, to some degree, trivialize the redemption in Christ. You can't do otherwise. So that means that every pastor who is a faithful pastor is going to have to very much as you move from one side of the coin to the other in order to get the full picture of its facets or faces, you've got to go back and forth between those two realities. And I don't believe there's ever been a pastor from the dawn of history, except Jesus Christ himself as a preacher, that ever maintained a flawless balance. You see what I'm saying? 
In other words, this positive-negative issue gets to, gets to really hit home. So then if I don't want to, to be negative, what can I be? And I, at this point, and when I was discussing this with Raleigh, I said, I've struggled for years to try to find more careful terms. And when somebody over there said upbeat, you know, that, that to me, that, that uh, was a very interesting insight because we struggle, don't we, to get a sense of how, how to get, get our hands around this. And yet, I have to, to, to not at the same time let the world corrode and erode uh, the integrity we must maintain toward these, these life-giving truths. And so, in preaching the glory of Christ, I think we're to emphasize its sufficiency, its efficaciousness, that is, God doesn't fail. We can emphasize its encouraging nature, its uplifting nature, and its ennobling nature. Not to mention bringing a growing sense of thankfulness and God-centeredness into our thinking. And those are all marvelous, marvelous results, I believe. So, as we now begin to look at the issue of the person of Christ, the soteriology of Scripture, we need to realize that, like the coin, to get the full picture, we can't completely forget about the sin thing. Now, the last issue that I've mentioned by way of this sort of tiny, uh, mini-epistemological intro is the fact that because you and I are linear, we're linear thinkers, we're linear speakers, aren't we? And if I want to talk about two different subjects, I can't talk about them simultaneously. I've either got to choose A or B. And if I want to go from B back to A, I have to stop talking about B in order to be able to talk about A. And so the same thing is true here. So there's a sense in which we try to train people, I believe, to realize that just because I address B doesn't mean we shouldn't intuit that therefore we're neglecting A or vice versa unless that's a very overt, if you will, quantitative neglect. So with that then, if I really believe that uh, Jesus Christ came for a specific purpose, I can't ever separate in some perfect sense. I've got to keep interfacing it with this doctrine of man, and I would like to show you how the Scripture does this in some very remarkable ways. Let's go to Matthew 1, first of all. Matthew chapter 1. Now, in this account in Matthew 1, we have an angel appearing to Joseph, and in verse 21, uh, he tells us uh, that there's going to be two names. This is really in verse 21 and 23 tells us two names. And in verse 21 tells us one name, that is going to be given to this child that is to be born of Joseph's wife, Mary. And she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And you see the emphasis there? He doesn't just say the name his name is to be Jesus, but it's to be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now that's a very, very clear indication of that divinely ordained link between the person of Jesus Christ and the reality of man's sin. Now, when Jesus Christ begins to preach, he begins to preach with a very interesting message. Chapter 4 of Matthew. Chapter 4 and verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Rejoice, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You agree? No. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Now, if I could be a bit bold here, I'm going to declare that repent meets all the criteria of a negative word by, by today's standards. The minute you say the word repent, it's just, it's just a full of implication, isn't it? Starting with the fact that there must be some sin involved because you don't repent of anything else but sin if you understand repentance correctly. So here is Jesus Christ, the model preacher, who certainly better than anybody else preached and taught redemption. And Jesus Christ himself has that message of repentance. Now I want to push this a little bit further. Let me take you over to John chapter 8. And by this time, you've probably figured out that I think this, these remarks in John 8 are extremely pivotal. Now, we read verses 31 and 32 where Jesus said, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, you remember that we've been talking about self-deception and the nature of man, just the last hour as well as the first hour. And I believe if you ever wanted an example of corporate self-deception, you've got one of the best in the whole Bible in the next verse. They answered him, We're Abraham's offspring, and yet have never been enslaved to anyone. Now think about that. <laughs> think about that. Let's start with the Egyptians. And how about the Midianites? And how about the Amalekites? And the Moabites? And all these folks that kept coming in and giving them fits. And then how about the Syrians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans? And they look right at Jesus without apparently a blush. They said, we've never been enslaved to anybody. And they hated him because he wouldn't lead a kingdom uprising against the Romans, among other things. And they look right at him and say, we've never been enslaved. Convinced? Convinced that but for the grace of God, we can be utterly deceived and not even realize it. Now, Jesus deals with this and very interestingly, however, he says in verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So, verse 36, when he says, well, I don't want to skip 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So, what kind of freedom is, is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about political freedom? Clearly, he repudiates that and focuses their attention on spiritual freedom from the dominion of sin. Now, let's go over for a moment to chapter 17. As we begin now to move uh, full-fledged into this idea of the Reformation heritage in the great business of salvation. Remember, John 17 is the great high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. And he begins praying in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all mankind that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now notice in verse 2. He is suggesting, if that isn't a wimpy word of the hour, he is declaring that he himself has been given authority over all mankind and those whom the Father has given him in order that he may give eternal life to them. Talk about election with a capital E. Talk about sovereignty with a capital S. Here Jesus Christ sees fit in this brief hour before the terrible horrors of his trial began, among other things, to reiterate for all time and eternity the preeminence of God in the giving of eternal life. And that's glorious, isn't it? I might add, it's also horrible for the egocentric. Now, let's go over to a text that I suspect most of you uh, are indeed familiar with in Ephesians 2. We'll take a look at that. As we begin to see how these two issues of the nature of man and the redemption of Christ are so inseparably tied together like the two sides of a coin. Chapter 2 of Ephesians. Verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. How unflattering. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, and then this is the kicker, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Isn't that incredible? when he, he made us alive when we were dead in transgression. How utterly devastating to self-esteem. When we were walking corpses, he came and vivified us in love. There's the glory of his grace, but it is interfaced with the truth of our nature. Now, I want to move ahead for just a minute in trying to keep that narrow balance between an excessive emphasis either on the nature of man or either on the glory of Christ to the exclusion of the other and then contribute to an imbalance. In this matter of preaching, the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have got to remember, if I'm going to do it faithfully, as do any of us, that first of all, I cannot achieve perfect, absolutely flawless balance. I said that earlier. So, if I want to try to avoid gross imbalance, what's going to be my very best protection, my very best protection from excesses of imbalance. Now remember what Newton said about learning to think God's thoughts after him? There's the hint. What's going to be my best protection in striving to maintain that razor's edge balance there of not uh, getting a disproportionate emphasis on one at the expense of the other. Tony. Amen. Amen. Did you hear that? Expository preaching of the scriptures. And if you understand what expository preaching is, it means you don't read into it what isn't there and you don't leave out what is. 
That's exactly right. And in terms of personal life and personal testimony, if you will, a better word, personal witnessing, I guess, and proclamation of the gospel and communicating it to others, uh, the more you quote scripture directly, as opposed to putting it in your own words, the more effectual you will be. Now that's so simple, isn't it? And what has been one of the concomitant weaknesses of the church is we've been more and more seduced into the gospel of saint self why we don't memorize anymore. We don't memorize. That's considered old-fashioned, isn't it? And it's considered suppressing the natural instincts of creativity. Now, in Ephesians 2, let me ask you, do you think this is a reasonable propositional statement? Dead men have great difficulty responding to anything. (laughs) That's kind of underwhelmingly obvious, isn't it? So when we talk to people about the gospel, do you believe we should say to them, if you don't know Jesus Christ, and you have no heart to believe, you don't understand repentance, you don't have any movement to repent, the high or the greatest probability is you are dead in trespasses and sin. You think we should say that? Amen. Amen. I have used this text in the Navy with thousands of people and have found over and over again, not in every case by any means, but in far more than I could count, that that was like dumping a bucket of ice water on them. Whew! The Bible really says that? Yes, the Bible really says that. You are a walking corpse, spiritually speaking, and you need God's supernatural grace to make you alive. And you have the privilege of asking Christ for mercy. And young man, I didn't tell you to invite him into your heart. It's your job to ask him to invite you into the kingdom. Now, in order to emphasize the hope, to keep this balance, let's go for a minute back to Matthew. So that the Arminians don't have a complete heart attack here. We don't, after all, want them to have heart attacks. Well, maybe we do, but we shouldn't say it. Uh, If we do, maybe we have to repent, but I'm not going to get into that. All right. So you want to try to encourage the people that don't understand the sovereignty of God in redemption. Look at verses 28 through 30 of Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. I believe that's an unparalleled invitation in terms of kindness, grace, mercy, compassion, gentleness, and in a very real sense, attractiveness. And one of you folks came up to me after the first uh, morning and mentioned this, which I agreed with that individual, that if you ever want an example of humility, Uh, Here is the example par excellence that is flawless, the person of Jesus Christ, and he declares himself to be humble in heart. And I believe he's the only person living who could ever do that without that being a sin. But would you concede this morning that this is clearly 
and I'll now use that overworked word, this is clearly an invitation, an invitation to come unto Jesus Christ. Now the fact that uh, the sovereignty of God is involved here does not diminish the genuineness of the, of the invitation. And at this point, before I take a few minutes to review some of the great um, then Reformation perspectives on the business of salvation, I want to draw a little picture over on the blackboard and make some comments on it. So bear with me for just a minute. By the way, Len, do you think we could somehow get a few pieces of chalk? <laughs> we are at the nubbin end of the spectrum, and I'm beginning to have apprehensions that there will be nothing but dust left to draw with if I need another day here. Now, big circle. Christian, home, X. Inside this circle is the children's... Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Steve. The children's library. And inside the home, we have a very happy little Hepzibah or Burpton, as the case may be, smiling because dad and mother are going to read to her. Now, I should have put dad and mother in the bigger circle, but uh, my artwork uh, is marginal. Now, would you be willing to concede that it is the experience of most Christian parents that if they read to their children at an early age, the children rather quickly develop favorites. Now I want you to know that there is a book, the author of which I have willfully forgotten the name of. <laughs> and the name of the book was Farmer Brown Feeds the Animals. <laughs> I read Farmer Brown Feeds the Animals easily a thousand times. And if you woke me up in my sleep, whispered in my ear, what did the cow say? I can say, moo, moo. And what did the horse say? Nay, nay. I can go through the whole, the whole vocabulary of the barnyard. Now you may ask, what has that got to do with a lecture on soteriology? Well, believe it or not, it's got something to do with it. Because I'm going to now propose to you the only analogy I've ever been able to come up with that at least will help us to get a sense of how the sovereignty of God interfaces with our actual behavior and choices and decisions at a much lower level. And they're both true. Would you concede that, unless it's a home where the parents are very, very careful, mother and dad exercise certain, um, if you will, literary... Um, exclusion. Uh, there's a certain amount of, of, I can't think of the word, it's at the tip of my tongue, but censorship. Uh, even if grandpa and grandma send a book they don't like, mother and dad will probably stick it away. If mother and dad have any kind of commitment, they are the one that makes the choice which little Johnny or Susie are going to hear. True or false? And in every home, furthermore, it's a finite collection of books. True or false? It's true, isn't it? Now, you begin to read the book is it true or not true that very quickly the children, each child, develops his or her favorite or favorites? I'll venture, it's an almost universal experience, that after you've read your particular child's parallel to Farmer Brown Feeds the Animal for the 200th or 300th or 400th time, that when you skip a page hoping the child will not notice, <laughs> 
the child notices. In fact, they never fail to notice. And if your child is, or children are like ours, generally they're rather put out <laughs> with your omission. And would you further concede for this little analogy that you did not coerce or manipulate the child into choosing that one or two favorites? True or false? I mean, that was an authentic, at the child's level of discernment, that was an authentic, non-manipulated, non, get this, non-puppet choice. The child did not robotically choose it at your command. You didn't beat the child or threaten the child if they didn't choose a particular book. That was 100% their choice, true or false. And yet, believe it or not, it was also 100% your choice which books came into the home. So the literary constellation, that very limited literary constellation from which your child chose his or her favorite, was a constellation over which you exercised literary sovereignty, true or false. Last question. Do you believe that if you had said to three-year-old Susie or Johnny or Hepzibah or Burpton, Son, I want you to know that I have exercised as your father, or your mother and I have together made this decision, to bring into this home a finite constellation of children's books, selected according to critically applied biblical criteria, from which we recognize before the fact that you would make authenticated choices that the child would understand. No, 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 no. Child would not understand. I said there was one more question. No, that was wrong. There was two. However, does the fact that the child does not understand make the reality any less real? In fact, the child doesn't have 1% of understanding Presumably, and yet it's 100% true, isn't it? So is it the child's choice? That favorite book, mine was Bartholomew Cubbins and the 500 Hat <laughs> by Dr. Seuss. I didn't like his later ones. It never measured up to Bartholomew Cubbins. <laughs> but whatever yours was, that was that child's choice. And yet it's equally true, it was the parent's choice. And they're both true, aren't they? They're both true. And you have an imperfect, an imperfect but not, but not uh, spurious analogy. If you can understand this, how God deals with us sovereignly and yet we're not puppets within that very limited realm within, God, within which God causes us to function. And so when he makes us alive and we choose then to respond to that invitation, the Arminians would say that's their choice, the individual choice. We say, yes, it is, but no, it isn't. Because God is the one who gave the individual the life and the desire and the discernment and the understanding and the word in which they could then realize their need of Jesus Christ. Now, you see, you've just been taken through the ultimate problem of theology in a sense in miniature because nobody has ever perfectly understood how the sovereignty of God interfaces with the responsibility of man. But we've got to be jealous for them both. And you see, like two sides of a coin, if I only look at the head, at sovereignty, I will get into ultimately hyper-Calvinism and the irresponsibility of man. And if I only look at the tail, that is the responsibility of man, I will get into wretched Arminianism and a diminution of the sovereignty of God. So I need to keep going back and forth between the accountability of man as it's described in Scripture and the sovereignty of God. Both are important. And that balance, you see, again, the narrow road business is tough. But consider the alternatives. 
Is it any wonder then that Americans in many churches have simply given up theology altogether? When the school system doesn't teach thinking, we don't teach thinking in the churches, our public media does not teach thinking. In fact, everything is calculated to discourage careful thinking. Is it any wonder that people find this just simply overwhelming and gravitate to personal experience, what feels good for you, what seems to work for you, that's pragmatism. Now, in contrast to that, I submit our forefathers unequivocally believed that man does not choose to be saved, but rather is chosen by God for salvation from eternity. That's the declaration of Scripture. And if you don't believe it, then I say at least be intellectually honest and rip out the first page of Ephesians. At least you'll be more honest. Our forefathers in the Reformation believed that man could not, under any circumstances, save himself or earn his salvation. They believed that the salvation of God's elect people was accomplished entirely by Jesus Christ and that there was and is salvation in no other than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that exclusivity that's so odious in a climate of pluralism. There's that narrowness that's hated in a day of latitudinarian broadness. They believe further that Christ's cruel death on the cross was absolutely necessary in order to pay the penalty of the sins of God's elect people, in order to propitiate God's wrath against our sins, in order to reconcile God to us, in order to provide a propitiation for our sins, and in order to accomplish our justification before God. Our Reformation forefathers understood and believed that spiritually dead men had to be born again in order to exercise saving faith and repentance unto life, in order to have the righteousness of Christ imparted to them, imputed, excuse me, to them, in order to be saved. Our Reformation forefathers believed that sanctification and perseverance were inseparable from true salvation and the necessary consequences thereof. Some years ago, I was asked while a student in seminary to preach in a little tiny Methodist church in the reaches of upper northern Ontario, far, far in the north country. Uh, that church only was open in the summer, in winter it was inaccessible. And when I preached uh, in that particular church, I decided to just simply lay out the gospel. And there was a man there who had been a Methodist all his life, and I remember him coming to me after the service. I thought he was going to have a heart attack. Uh, he was so red in the face. But he said, showing me John 3.16, Whosoever! 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 Don't you know what whosoever means? And I said, yes, it means those who do. Those who do. He said, no, it doesn't. It means everybody. And I realized that the man uh, was, of course, hopelessly obsessed. But with that thought in mind, I would like to take you to John 3, that favorite passage, even today, of most professing Christians, and to illustrate to you the wonderful carefulness of Scripture in this great business of salvation. I trust, uh, you know, it's claimed, and I suppose it's true, that John 3.16 is the world's favorite verse amongst the all-time favorite verse amongst Christians. But in John 3, we get the account, of course, of Nicodemus coming, and he engages in a little flattery. You know, we know you've come from God as a teacher, and Jesus doesn't even give him the time of day. Great Nicodemus, you know, at least you got your act together, you understand who I am, nothing like that. Uh, he's very, in his, I think this is a true case of godly abruptness, he says, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then, of course, Nicodemus asks the typical skeptical question, how can you be born again? And Jesus answers uh, in response to that, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, notice he's saying there's a progression there. 
The first time he says, if you're not born again, you can't even see the kingdom. And he said, if you're not born of water and the Spirit, born again, obviously, uh, by the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom. You can't see it, you can't enter it. And then verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now think for a minute. There are some things so universal, like the two sides of culture. Would you agree that in every culture, when babies are born, they're born in essentially the same way? Now, there may be some you know, wag in the group that says, well, yes, there's some are caesarean, some are natural birth. And I understand that. But what I'm addressing is the fact that babies develop in the wombs of their mother and after presumably nine months, mom gives birth. I mean, that's a real basic, isn't it? That transcends culture. Secondly, now let's tie culture to language. Do you know what the difference between the active and passive voice is in grammar? What's an active verb? I couldn't hear. Still can't hear. Throw. Okay, that's an example of an active verb. What distinguishes an active verb such as throw from a passive verb such as what? Using the same throw, what would be the passive form of throw? Thrown or to be thrown, if you use the uh, uh, infinitive, to throw or to be thrown. So now you're thinking this through for a minute. A passive verb as opposed to an active verb is a verb in which the action is applied to the subject, whereas in the case of an active verb, the subject is the one who carries out the action. True or false? Do you realize there's no language on the face of the earth that has the verb born in the active voice? It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Can you figure out why? Think for a minute. Can you imagine somebody saying, I borned in 1932. I borned myself in 1927. You see, that doesn't make any sense. Everybody says, even the youngsters today who haven't any language training, say, I was born in. That's a universal reality that's so powerful that even the complete deprivation of linguistic training overrides uh, that or cannot override that reality. Now, if you look at the text then, notice that Jesus says you must be born again. Something ought to click. Are you the active or the passive agent in your first birth? Are you the active or the passive agent in your second birth, if you let grammar tell you anything? You're the passive recipient in the second birth as much as you are in the first. And the real kicker is verse 9, because he says, everyone who is born of the Spirit is like the wind blowing where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. Anybody here remember being born the first time? Anybody? I read the other day somebody remembers being born coming down the birth canal. I've known one or two people that have claimed it. I'm willing to reserve judgment <laughs> because that is invariably a testimony that is existential and subjective. <laughs> Would you repeat that for the benefit of the assembled multitude? Yes. I am actually going to resist the temptation to counterpun. I'm going to resist it by God's grace. I'm not going to counterpun. (laughs) 
I think I need to enter a 12-step program <laughs> for addictive punters. What's the deficit, Andy? <laughs> punters deficit? <laughs> oh, you haven't worked on that. Well, you'll make your name in, in uh, psychological circles if you can come up with a punters deficit term. Okay, thank you, Len. Now, here in, in uh, John 3, then, you have a most wonderfully careful statement from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are the recipients of that second birth as surely as we were recipients of the first. And you see, one of the things about the wind that's interesting, and here, what a beautiful spot to be reminded of this. Can you see the wind? No. Do you believe there is such a commodity? Everybody does, unless they're, you know, like Rachel or something, they can't think that through. But other than that, everybody believes there's a wind. How do you tell that there's this thing called the wind? How do you tell? I think I heard it. Results, or if we want to be a little more technical, the observable secondary evidence. Leaf on tree goes wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. You conclude wind went by. <laughs> something like that. Isn't that right? And that's how you do it. So, would you be willing to agree that there are some things that we find out evidentially only after the fact? Because by the time your eyes see the leaf go wiggle, 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 that particular set of wind molecules or air molecules moved by the wind have already done their business on that leaf that's going wiggle, 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 right? So, the same way is true in the new birth that after the fact, you begin to see the evidences of it just as surely as you do the wind. You see the consistency? Isn't that beautiful? For God so loved the world then that he did give his only begotten Son and it's absolutely consistent and doesn't violate the sovereignty of God that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And who believes in him? Those who are the elect, those who have been born again, those who have been made alive, those who are unable to respond in faith and repentance. Isn't that marvelous? And it takes off of me and you an unbearable burden. And if I believe that, then I'm in a much better place to go further in John to chapter uh, 10 and read something of this sort in the, pa in the great uh, chapter on the Good Shepherd. Chapter 10. And we find that Jesus says, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved, shall go in and out and find pasture. There's another one of those exclusivity statements. And then... He says, verse 14 and following, I am the good shepherd, I know my own. My own known me, know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 18, no one has taken it away from me. It's his life. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Now, by this time, he's gotten into pay dirt in salvation theology because he's saying, I, as the good shepherd, authoritatively lay down my life and authoritatively pick it up for my sheep. I'm not the victim. That is a predetermined, God-ordained glory for the sheep. And oh, how impoverished we are when we turn our back on that and look for the cheap substitutes. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of me. But you, and you do not believe, he said. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. That's why you don't believe. You haven't been called. You haven't been quickened. 
My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Now remember one of those principles, there's no truth that you cannot abuse. So of course people have abused the marvelous confidence we're properly to have in the sufficiency of salvation by promiscuously misusing that privilege, but that doesn't make it untrue. It just means that that individual or individuals has elected to bastardize it and twist it to their own destruction. And ought I to be surprised? Absolutely not. Because the scripture tells me over and over that men who are reprobate will twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Do you believe it? So if I'm going to be in a position where I can tell the difference between the twisters and the truthers, the exegetes and the eisegetes, and eisegesis is incidentally the opposite of exegesis, it's reading into the Word of God what's not there, then I have a responsibility as an individual, a presumed responsible individual within the body, to search the scriptures, to become familiar with them, to know them, to study them, to love them, yes, maybe even to memorize them. That's awesome, isn't it? But the fact is that God has called you and me to be repositories of truth. And with that, I want to take you over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has done a magnificent uh, job of laying down uh, uh, just a glorious expression of the gospel. And then he begins to apply it. And in the chapter 4, after talking about uh, some of the things that God is giving to the church, uh, such as apostles and prophets and so on, he says in verse 12 that all this is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Now, God willing, next day, tomorrow, we'll come back to this as the final wrapping up of this little uh, sort of mini overview. He says, and, and that's to be the case, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, we began our time together addressing just a tiny iceberg tip of the heresy swirling around us today. I want to challenge you with this thought. There are very few churches and denominations left in the country that take the preservation and the proclamation of truth seriously. Very very few. And in the mercy of God, you've been brought into that privilege and also, I might add, that obligation. And if you think that's only the province of the pastors and the elders, you're wrong. It's the province of every believer. So he says, verse 14, that as a result of this unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, this maturity... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Now, I hope you walk out of here today encouraged. You've got a gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. You have a gospel that is so powerful it can change men's self-deception you have a gospel that tells us of a God who makes us alive from being corpses, and he says it's a gospel that will protect you. It will protect you if you take it seriously. And verse 15 tells us how we're to play that out tangibly within the church. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even Christ. Do you realize that the premier, if you will, interpersonal responsibility, the number one premier interpersonal dynamic given to the church 
as God's ordained instruments for its, its corporate maturation is speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. And that doesn't mean just corrective truth when somebody errs or sins, but it means speaking all of those great doctrines of the faith as appropriate and as God gives occasion. Speaking the truth in love. I've got a minute or two left, have I, Lynn? May I propose to you an irony that our perversity is of such a nature that in our particular country we have a tradition that is appalling. And that is that we love to oversimplify what is complex. Now I've suggested that to you already in the matter of cliches. But I'm going to propose to you the other side of that communicative corruption coin and that is that we also love to complicate what's beautifully straightforward and simple. And so we take the gospel, God have mercy on us, and we tend to cloud it with all sorts of considerations that may have some validity, but in fact obscure it. Remembering that the basic truths of the kingdom, in a very real sense, should be understandable to a maturing child, properly articulated. And yet the same word of God gives us truth that can never be ultimately exhausted. And so we're to begin with milk, and milk is wonderful, but we're to move to meat. We are to mature. We are not to be static. We are to grow. And last night, Tony pointed out something I've said over and over again, and I'm glad somebody else is saying it. You know, those of us that are broken records and these things need other broken records to help, you know, get that point home. And that is that we are to mature corporately as well as individually. We are to grow together. This is the message to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to speak the truth in love together. And so, be fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the working of each individual part which causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, you want something uplifting. You want something glorious. You want something encouraging. You want something that's motivating to people. I would be hard put to suggest anything more motivating than the picture of Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 for the church. The idea that every member in the body has something to contribute. Every member is to grow. Christ is the ultimate source of that maturation and sanctification. But because we've been made alive, we're not robots and puppets. We are real people who can authentically participate in that incredible business of salvation, first with respect to communicating the truth, and then with respect to sanctification in terms of how we live out the implications of our initial redemption. And so I find in the scripture, for instance, and we will, God willing, look at this, that sanctification is never separated from salvation. And if I had time, I could go into that whole business of how so many evangelical churches preach the gospel, they quote, get people saved, I hate that term. God instrumentally uses them in many instances to bring people to salvation. And then they're dropped as the whole preaching of the church is an exclusive emphasis on salvation. I believe in the OPC, one of our great strengths for which we give God the praise and the credit, has been to try to emphasize properly the preaching of the whole counsel of God and the truths with respect to salvation or sanctification. 
I do believe we have room to grow in terms of the loving, enthusiastic, responsible, and theologically accountable proclamation of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that never, 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 please God, ever erodes God's sovereignty in anything. And certainly not, please God, in salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please give us an adoring love for you and for your word. We thank you for the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. We thank you for making us alive. And for those who in this very room may very well not be alive in Christ, we plead with you to bring spiritual life, awareness of their lost estate, to bring an understanding of their absolute and desperate need of the redemption that's in Christ. And, O oh God, to tear away like an old garment any spiritual lethargy or complacency, either in those who are unsaved or those of us who by your grace have every reason to believe we're saved but may have grown careless in holy things. And all of this we ask, O oh God, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the sake of Christ and the honor of Christ. Amen. Two quarters here to their owners. Oops, I dropped.